You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Well, it's so great to see all of you and more of you in one place at one time. This is pretty cool. Great to see you. Glad you're here. If you're a guest with us, welcome on behalf of our our church family. Um, When I woke up this morning, which was multiple times, I kept thinking, I'm late, I'm late, I'm late, and I wasn't. I don't know if you had that experience, but there's going to be some settling into these new service times for us. And just kind of being out of of, um, pattern this morning, out of rhythm, I left my glasses at home. And so don't worry, I can't see you or my notes, so we're in great shape this morning. I tried on some of my older glasses, which I always keep a pair here in case I do something like that, which I do more often than not. And I was wearing them, and I was telling Jamie as we were singing earlier in the service, I can't see any better. In fact, I think I'm seeing worse. So, so we're going glasses list this morning, and that's all right. I can see something. So that being said, as I was preparing for this passage this morning, ah, man, it took me back to something that happened many, many years ago when, when Jamie and I were first married. We've been married almost 28 years now. And this was just in the, the first couple years we were married. Gosh, we were, we were as poor as church mites. We, just, we were barely making bills. We were a young family. You know, we started out like most young families start out. You're just, you know, you don't have a lot of resources. And, and money matters in terms of trying to shepherd it, take care of it, save it, invest it, but just barely having enough for what you need. And I remember very unexpectedly that our refrigerator died. And at this point in our lives, we were living on the west side, and this will really take some of us back. We went to the paper, the paper, to, to look in the classified ads for refrigerators. And some of you are going, the paper, you can go see one in a museum. If you, you know, that used to be one of the ways we communicated before the internet and phones and everything else that we have. And all that being said, we go to the paper and we look for used refrigerators because that's really all we could afford. We couldn't afford to, to buy a new one. And we found one way out on the other side of the world in this place called Wood Village. Never been there before. <laughs> didn't know where it was. So we made this trek in my father-in-law's van to go get this refrigerator. And, you know, it was a white one, and which was, you know, at the time was the, a modern color. That was you know, a newer fridge. And so we thought, okay, well, this looks good, and it was only supposed to be about eight years old. At least that's what the guy told us. And so we laid it down in the van and transported it back home. And of course, whenever you lay a refrigerator down, you need to tip it back up and leave it alone for a couple days to let all the fluids resettle before you plug it in. And so we did that. We were living out of a cooler at that point for our food that needed to be refrigerated. So we plugged the fridge in, and it works. For three days. And on the third day, it dies, and there is no resurrection. It's not coming back. It's, it's dead. And as I'm looking closer at this refrigerator, I notice that the manufacturer date has been scratched out. And as I'm scratching that to see if maybe I can find what was underneath there, the white color all of a sudden becomes a green color. And what this guy had done was he had taken this old refrigerator and had painted it white. Now, again, for those of you who can go back in the day with me, green, even at that point in time, 25 years ago, was an old color for an appliance. 
That was like a 40-year-old appliance in today's term. You know, he's just, how in the world did this happen? Well, this guy painted over it. He basically took us for a ride with this refrigerator. And then he left town. And we couldn't track him down and we couldn't find him. And this guy had swindled us. This guy evidently was some kind of shyster. I, I don't know how much he did this to people, but he certainly did it to us. And we pick up our story here in Genesis really on the, on the end of a very similar situation that's just happened. Jacob, whose name not only means one who grasps the heel, but also means deceiver, has, has done just that. He has swindled his older brother out of his birthright and out of the family blessing, and then he goes on the run for his life because his brother Esau wants to kill him. And so his mom and dad send him away to protect him, but also to send him off to go get a wife. And so he's now on this journey. And if you were with us last week, Gabe took us through. He's on the run. He's penniless. He's headed to this distant land. I mean, he's in probably the lowest place of his life. And God appears to him in this vision, in this dream. And he sees this vision of this stairway and angels ascending and descending and God standing above it. And and God speaks to him and basically reaffirms the promise that he gave to his grandpa Abraham and that he gave to his dad Isaac and he reconfirms it in Jacob and promises him I will always be with you and I will do all these things for you and now this is where we pick up our story in Genesis 29 he's just had this amazing encounter with God and he continues on in this journey and because this is such a long passage we're just going to work our way through it um, verse by verse here we don't have time to read you the whole thing so we'll just work our way through it and then we'll circle back around to it so here we go so it says Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples and one of the interesting things that's lurking in the original language here is we read this and go oh, okay he kept going but there's more to it than that the way this is actually ris- written is it's saying that Jacob had a spring in his step he had this incredible vision and, and has been incredibly blessed and, and God has revealed himself to him. And so with a spring in his step, he continues on this journey. And he's journeying well over 400 miles to get to where this area is. And there it says, There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. And the stone over the mouth of the well was large, and we'll come back to this. This is a little piece here that's embedded here for us that points to something. And so when all the flocks, flocks rather, were gathered there, the shepherds would roll this large stone away from the well's mouth, and they would water the sheep. And then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. So Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. So, again, that's a customary greeting, a polite one, to address them as brothers. And where is Jacob headed to find this wife? To Haran. So, he's, he's found the place. And understand, assumably, he's never been here before. So, wow, what a coincidence he runs into these shepherds who are from Haran. And so, he asks them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yeah, we know him, they answered. What a coincidence. That just happens to be who he's looking for, his uncle Laban. And then Jacob asked them, is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. What a coincidence. Or maybe not. So then he says to them, look, the sun is still high. 
It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to the pasture. Now, this is pretty bold of him. He doesn't know who these guys are, but he's making some assumptions and some evaluations here. What are you guys doing here? Because typically you water the flocks at the end of the day. And this is kind of the middle of the day. The sun is still high. There's still a lot of day left. And so he's really boldly questioning them. He's basically saying, what are you guys doing here? Get to work. And and look how they respond. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. And it's interesting that they're saying they can't. Absolutely they can. What they're really saying is we won't. And there's a contrast being drawn here between Jacob and these shepherds, and we're going to come back to it when we look our way back on this passage. But while all this is going on, now the, the, the narrator returns to the story. While he was talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. And when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Now, there's a lot that begins to come into focus here, especially if you've been with us as we've journeyed through Genesis, because now we're going to start seeing some parallels that are deliberately being drawn between this chapter and chapter 24. Do you remember what happened in chapter 24? Isaac says, you know what? We need a, or rather, Abraham says, we need a wife for Isaac. And so he sends his servant to this same area And how did the servant, if you'll remember with me in Genesis 24, know that Rebekah, Jacob's mom, was the the woman for for, for Isaac? He had prayed this very specific prayer about Rebekah or whoever coming and watering his camels and, and serving him. And what happens? She comes out, she waters his camels, she serves him. And what's going on here? It's almost a reversal of that. Jacob now is serving Rachel. Very deliberate imagery with that. And really, what's happening here is extraordinary because, again, we were told early on in this story that this was a large stone, inferring that it took many people to move it. And who moves the stone? Jacob does all by himself. It's pretty remarkable. This this is, and what's become significant about this is when you look at this with how this story has been progressing and you look back to Genesis 28. Okay, what happened right before this? So Jacob uses a stone for a pillow, which, you know, is what it is. But then it says he took that same stone and he erected it as a monument to God because God had met him in that place. He named that place Bethel, the house of God, the place of God. And now we have the stone. And this stone motif really becomes another indicator, another assurance of God's presence with Jacob. God said he would never leave him. He would always be with him. And what does he do? He, he performs this incredible act of strength and rolls this stone away. It, it, it's really of Samson-like proportions. This is, this is pretty amazing. This is a mini miracle in and of itself. And how advantageous. I mean, guys, you're trying to show off for a girl? An amazing feat of strength right in front of her? I mean, come on, does it get any better than that? I mean, it's pretty incredible. And we don't want to make too much of that, but it is a very subtle tie and a direct tie back to the last chapter. So let's continue on. What happens from here? Well, Jacob kisses Rachel and begins to weep 
aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father again. This is exactly what happened in, in Genesis 24. The servant, when Rebekah responds that way, he, he, he praises God and he worships. And then remember, Rebekah ran back to Laban and her dad. And this is exactly what Rachel does. She runs back to her dad. And it says he kissed her. Again, he's not hitting on her. He's not making a pass at her. That was a normal, customary greeting. There's a lot of culture swimming around in this passage. But he begins to cry because he's so overcome with emotion that he recognizes this is no coincidence. God has said he would be with him. God has said he would guide him, and that's exactly what he is doing and what Jacob is experiencing. And so as the story goes, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. And then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. Jacob, we're family. We're family, which was everything in that culture. And man, what a, what a great story. And Uncle Laban, what a great guy. I mean, look how warm he is. And it gets better. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. What a good guy. I mean, that's fair. And it is generous to let Jacob set his wages because remember, Jacob is on the run for his life. He has nothing. He has nothing to offer except his work and his service. And so Laban says, name your price. And so what does Jacob say? Well, a little background before we see Jacob's response. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And there, again, is a lot swimming around in here. Number one, remember, biblical names always mean something. And these names do begin to fill in a puzzle here as to why the narrator is telling us some of these details. Leah means cow. Rachel means you, like little baby lamb. And of course, we have cultural connotations for that, and ours aren't necessarily theirs. However, it does tell us that she had weak eyes. And we're not really sure what that means. There's a lot of debate among scholars. So does that mean she couldn't see real well? Was she nearsighted? Was she farsighted? Did she sometimes forget her glasses like I did this morning? I mean, what what does weak eyes mean? Or this could also mean delicate eyes. Did she have beautiful eyes? Or this could mean that her eyes were kind of misshapen. Or, okay, so did she have frog eyes or fish eyes? They kind of were bulgy or, you know, we we don't know. It's kind of all over the board. But this is what we do know. There's a very deliberate contrast being made here between how they both looked. And what is very deliberately being drawn for us here is that Rachel was drop-dead gorgeous. She was beautiful with however that culture perceived and defined beauty. And Leah wasn't. And that's the contrast here. You have one woman, Rachel, who any guy would want to marry. And then you have Leah, who not so much any guy would want to marry. And this is very deliberately being drawn for us here. So back to the other part of our story. So name your wages, Jacob. Well, Jacob was in love with Rachel. 
and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And again, we have to appreciate what's going on here and the significance of his statement. Let's do a little basic math. So we know from culture and archaeology and from um, history that a bride price, what you would pay to marry a woman in that day and age in the ancient Near East was around 30 to 40 shekels, okay? It doesn't matter how much a shekel is at this point. So basically one and a half shekels was what the average person would earn from a month of work. So let's do some math here. So Jacob just said, I'll work seven years for her. That's 84 months. That's 126 shekels worth of work. Folks, this is four times the price of a normal bride price. This is exorbitantly generous on Jacob's part. I mean, this is over the top. He is in love. (laughs) And he will do whatever it takes to win Rachel's hand. And seven years, that's a long time. You ever waited for anything seven years? Worked hard for something for seven years? So I was thinking about this. I was reminded of my own, my own courtship, my own dating with Jamie. We dated six and a half years before we got married. It was a long time to wait for her to be my wife. We were high school sweethearts, college sweethearts, got married right out of college just as fast as I could get her to the altar after we graduated from, from school, but, and I wasn't working for her, but six and a half years was a long time to wait. How do you think Rachel felt when Jacob said, I'll work seven years for her hand? Ladies, how would you like a guy to do that for you? Now, we don't know how Rachel felt, but we do know how Jacob felt about all this. To him, it just seemed like a few days. And of course, look at Laban's response. It's better that I give her to you than to some other man, so stay here with me. And so he serves seven years to get Rachel, and they seem like a few days to him because of his, his love for her. So the time comes. He's completed the seven years, and he says to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. So now things are going to accelerate in this story and take a different turn. Which, which daughter do you think Jacob meant when he said this? He just said, give me my wife. I'll never forget when um, I proposed to Jamie, I called her dad, my future father-in-law, who I had known for six and a half years. So there was some relationship there. Highly respected this man and a great sense of humor. And, and man, I, I loved this man. He's with the Lord now, but one of, one of the most impactful men in my life. But I call him, and here I am. I'm this nervous, young, 20-something guy about to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. And so that's exactly how I phrased it. I said, Dr. Vale, and Jamie's dad was a doctor. Dr. Vale, this is Jay. And, oh, hi, Jay, what are you doing? I said, well, I wanted to call you. Um, I, I'd like to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage. And without hesitation, he said, which daughter? Because <laughs> he had two. And I said, well, Dr. Vale, how about the daughter I've been dating for the last six and a half years? I mean, both your daughters are lovely, but... I'm asking for Jamie's, Jamie's hand in marriage. Well, that was a joke. This isn't. And look what happens here. 
So Laban brings together all the people of the place and gives a great feast, and that's what you did. And again, from archaeology history, we have a pretty good idea that this is about a week-long celebration. I mean, this is a major deal in that culture. And when evening comes, he takes his daughter Leah, brings her to Jacob, and Jacob makes love to her. Now, this is one of those many places where I've just, I'm not quite sure how this works. And some of you might be thinking, okay, well, Jay, we need to have a talk. There's the birds and the bees. No, not that. But how in the world on his wedding night does Jacob not know that it's Leah? And we don't know. We just, what, what, was he tipsy? What, had he drank too much? We, we know that she probably came in veiled and it, it was dark. I mean, okay, we don't know, but this is what we do know. The deceiver has now been deceived. And there's just a little commentary in here because we're going to come back to this next week. Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. She will figure prominently in the next week's story. But when the morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And that's exactly right. He has been absolutely deceived. He's been lied to. He's been betrayed. He's been taken advantage of. He's been manipulated. He has every reason to be angry. But what sometimes I think gets overlooked in this story was, how do you think Rachel felt? How do you think Leah felt? She knew who Jacob wanted to marry, who he was working for. And look how Laban responds. Well, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Okay, can I say it if you won't? lame. I mean, really? That probably was true. That probably was culturally true. But was that reasonable? Absolutely not. What basically is Laban saying here? You didn't read the fine print. You didn't check the color of the fridge. You should have known. This is a you problem, not a me problem. Bummer to be you. We'll make that G-rated, right? It's like, come on, really? And so this is what he says. Well, finish this daughter, Leah's, bridal week, and then we'll give you the younger one also. What a great guy. Well, okay. In return for another seven years of work. What? Yeah. So how are things working out here? Man, really well for Laban. Things are working great for him. Jacob clearly is a hard worker, clearly is a gifted shepherd, especially we'll see that in the coming weeks and in the coming chapters. He's good at what he does. And so now he gets seven years, he's gotten seven years of work from Jacob, and now he's going to get seven years more. Not a bad deal. And the daughter who presumably, assumably, Leah, who is unmarriable, now is married. So he'll get both his daughters married, which was... Very important in that culture for everybody. And man, I I struggle with this. Because Laban is a complicated character. Just like so many of the characters we've seen in Scripture are. I mean, he's a lot like Lot. Remember Abraham's nephew? I mean, he was declared to be righteous. In fact, remember, when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he spared Zor, he spared Small, Because Lot was there. For one righteous man, he spared that city. Presumably because Lot was righteous. But man, Lot 
holy cow, did he ever make some broken choices and some bad choices? And Laban, to this point, has been presented as a righteous figure, but man, this isn't, this isn't good at all. And we have to understand that as we read these stories, not everything these stories describe, and this is true for Scripture, this is a basic interpretive principle that we always need to keep in mind, not everything Scripture describes is endorsed or commended or is righteous. Because Scripture is describing life in righteous living, but also in broken living so that we can learn from it. The narrator is assuming that we are going to apply wisdom to what we're reading. We're going to also remember what Scripture says in other places, and that's how we're going to arrive at conclusions. We're being led to a conclusion here, in part, about what relationships are like when we step out of God's original design for marriage and sexuality, where that is one man and one woman in a covenant relationship, never-ending relationship, till death do us part, till the end of life. And so we're going to see that what is being set in motion here, especially in the coming weeks, is going to be an absolute train wreck. And as we continue on in the story here, it says, well, What's Jacob supposed to do? So he does. He works another seven years. He finishes the week with Leah, and then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant, and she will also figure in prominently next week with where we're going to go. Jacob makes love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. Wow. I'm not sure this is the greatest of stories. Can we go back to Mother's Day? Can we go back to last Sunday? But there is a lot here for us, and we'll just, we'll just look at a handful of things here. Number one, though, we learn from this, and what's on prominent display here is that God keeps his promises. And I know this is not a new principle or a new truth we've looked at in this series. It is a reoccurring principle and truth in this series. And we need to hear this and be reminded of this over and over again. Do you remember the last part of the promise that God made to Jacob in Genesis 28? What did he say? I will not leave you until I have done what I promised for you. And why does Jacob cry when he sees Rachel? Because he recognizes, he gets that God is with him, that God is doing everything he said he was going to do. Those weren't coincidences. This was God showing and reaffirming his, his, present, his presence. Jacob gets it. Do you get it? Do I get it? You know, one of the things as one of your pastors that I pray for you often is that you would see God's work in your life because he is. God is always at work in your life whether you can see it or not. He is always advancing his kingdom. He's always involved in our lives. And one of the most important things we have to keep in front of us is this reality that even when we don't see it, even when we don't experience it, we have to trust and believe and cling to the reality that God is still at work in our lives. And it's when you're struggling, it's when you're hurting, it's when you're doubting, that you need to lean into this the most. There have been a number of seasons in my life where incredibly difficult things have happened. I'm, I'm, I'm in one right now. And more than ever, I'm leaning into 
looking for God's work in my life. I keep a thankfulness journal. I've told you guys about that. I touch in on it every so often, and I'm deliberately, very consistently, every day looking for three things I can be thankful for because when I begin to look that way and think that way and act that way, I begin to live and experience and see God's work when it seems like he's not doing anything. We need to remember that this God keeps his promises, and if you want to experience the promises of God, you got to trust him. But we also see this, and I wasn't sure how to write this, but God desires righteousness. He's always looking for right living among those who follow him and love him and know him and trust and obey him. And in this passage, Jacob is being very deliberately portrayed as righteous. Despite his brokenness and the choices he's made that have been broken, there's some amazing things on display here. Number one, he's an incredibly hard worker. He works seven years for Rachel. In fact, when he first meets Rachel, there's nothing in it for him, and he serves her. He goes over and moves that stone, and he waters her flocks. That was a lot of work. And that was in contrast to the shepherds who were doing nothing at that point. Jacob serves her. Do do you live like that? Do you serve people when there's nothing in it for you, when there's there's nothing that you're going to get out of it? If you want to live distinctively for the Lord, that's one of the ways you do it. Because Jesus himself said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. We're like Jesus when we serve others, and there's nothing in it for us. And there are so many ways and opportunities for you to do that in your daily life. We look for and create ways for you to do that here in the life of the church. You just heard Pastor Bob not long ago here this morning talk about the many opportunities with Vacation Bible School. My heart and hope for all of you is that in some way, shape, or or form, you are invested into Vacation Bible School this year because we're doing a morning and an evening program. There are more opportunities for you to be involved than ever before, and this community needs Jesus Christ. And the kids of this community need Jesus Christ. And we have an unprecedented opportunity to reach into more lives than we ever have been before. And there's a way for you to be a part of this, and I hope that you will. But in contrast to Laban, another way that Jacob's righteous is that he keeps his word. He says he'll work seven years, he works seven years. He says he'll work seven more years, he works seven more years, even though he's been taken advantage of, even though he's been wronged, even though it's profoundly unfair, and he perseveres, which again is another act of righteousness. He sees this thing through because he said he would do it, and so he does. And this brings forth another reality that God is going to use difficult people and difficult circumstances to shape us if we'll let him do so. It is not a question of if you will be treated unfairly or taken advantage of or manipulated or used by someone at some point in your life. It's a matter of when. Because we live in a broken world, surrounded by broken people, and all of us sure start out in the same place as broken people before we come to know Jesus and before he begins to change us and mold us and shape us into who he wants us to be. But the reality is, this is coming your way and mine. And for most of us, it already has. We've had an unreasonable boss. We've had a teacher who has seemingly had it out for us. We've had an authority figure who has our number for seemingly no reason. We've been treated unfairly. We've been wronged. Sometimes it's even happened within our own families or happens on a continual basis in our own families. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. 
And it's not like we go out looking for that, but when it does come our way, are we going to allow God to use that to deepen us, to shape us, to make us and mold us into the people that he wants us to be? And you know, I think there's something very deliberate going on here in the economy of God and in the plan of God. And this is just me, but as I look at the arc of Jacob's life, what's going to happen from here? What's happened to this point? I think God is allowing Jacob to get a dose of his own medicine. So Jacob, how does it feel? How does it work to be on the receiving end of someone you've manipulated? Someone who takes advantage of you. Someone you've lied to. Someone you've wronged. Jacob has lived this way at this point for the most of his life that we've been able to see. He completely swindles and lies and takes advantage of and manipulates his brother and his family and now he's on the receiving end of that. I think this is going to produce some heart change in Jacob. Is he going to be perfect? Oh no, wait till you see what's coming. But I do think that God is using this in his life to help mold and shape him. Because I think when God allows that to happen to us, it's corrective. He wants to lead us to repentance. In fact, Romans 2 tells us that the kindness of God is intended, us, intended to lead us to repentance. When God gives us second and third and fourth chances, when we experience some of the brokenness that we perpetuate on others, it's so we'll learn from that and choose what's better. I mean, God's grace is never a license to continue to sin. It is the escape from sin. And thankfully, we don't have to settle for brokenness because there's something better. We're going to jump to the New Testament real, real quickly here. Prior to studying this passage, I really hadn't seen the connects here in the way that they are here from the New Testament to the Old. When Jesus is first gathering his disciples in the Gospel of John, as John is describing that process, there's an interaction that happens that points directly back to Genesis 28 and what we've seen happen, and this is it. So when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, this is Peter's brother, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Well, how do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before, I'm sorry, before Philip called you. Philip's his brother. And then Nathan declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told I saw you under the freak tree. You will see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now there's lots of imagery here. But this is a reference back to Genesis 28 and Jacob's stairway, Jacob's ladder. And what Jesus basically is saying here is, I am Jacob's dream come true. God doesn't just stand at the top of the ladder. He is the ladder. And this is so hugely significant for us to understand because once again, it is on display how the gospel is so different from every every other world religion and every other worldview. Because in every other religion, you are trying to get to God somehow, follow this creed, follow that code, do this, don't do that. Somehow, maybe you might be good enough to get to God or become part of God or become one with God. Christianity is the exact opposite of that. Christianity is, the Bible teaches, the gospel is that God comes to you. He's not just at the top of the ladder. He is the ladder. He is the stairway to heaven. 
God came to Jacob. God is coming to all of you who are listening to this this morning, whether you're here in the room or whether you're listening online. Because as we looked at last week with Gabe, God comes to us through his word. But that's not the only way he comes to us. He still comes to people in dreams. He still comes to people in visions. He still comes to us through circumstances and through people. But what we constantly go back to, what we filter those experiences to, the way we test those things is God's word. That is the foundation, to be sure. Those things always get tested against God's word. But the reality is God has come and is coming and has come today to all of us because you're hearing his word. And you have a choice just like Jacob did when he had that dream. Are you going to continue to fight God, flee from God, or follow God? And it is a defining moment decision and then an everyday moment by moment, hour by hour decision that you have to make. When God comes to you, how will you respond? I knew about Jesus for a long time, but I didn't know him. In fact, there was a season in my life where I thought he was a part of my life. Yeah, that's not what it means to follow Jesus. You don't make him part of your life. He is your life. And so the question for you and me this morning isn't if he has come to you because he has, because you're hearing his word and he's coming to you through his word and through the power of his Holy Spirit. The question for you and me is how are you gonna respond? There's a defining moment where you have to choose to surrender to him, where you say, I'm gonna follow you wherever you lead, wherever it means, wherever we go. I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna surrender myself to you. So as the worship team comes, and as we sing about that reality, some of you listening to this need to make that choice because you never really have. Oh, to your credit, you're open to spiritual things, you're here, or you're listening online, but You haven't made that defining moment decision to step into God's kingdom, to follow Jesus by having a personal relationship with him where you know him and receive him into your life. Now, there are a number of us here who have done that, but this is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day thing that we do where we choose to follow him, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when it feels like he's not doing anything. We choose to follow him to surrender ourselves to him. So we're gonna invite you to do that now. We have prayer teams who are gonna come forward here. They'll be off to the sides. We have communion off to the sides. Remind yourself of what Jesus has done for you. But he has come to you and he's coming to you this morning. So will you follow him? Will you trust him? Will you worship him? God, thank you that you are the God who comes to us who calls us away from our brokenness because you promise us something better. We don't have to settle for a life of sinfulness and selfishness and doing things on our own terms. God, you promise us joy and hope and peace and purpose and fulfillment if we will follow you. So God, would we in every part of our lives thank you that you're here with us. Thank you that you are speaking to us. Lord, help us to listen and respond. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, worship really is the orientation of our lives. So just because our service time ends and we're done singing doesn't mean that we're done worshiping. Maybe you're struggling with the promises of God right now and you're wondering where where God's at. 
or you're up against a difficult person, a difficult circumstance. We gather together for community, but also to discover Jesus together and to do life together. And so we have prayer teams off to the side. We'd love to pray with you if we could. I'd love to talk with you, any one of us would love to connect with you. But I want to leave you with these, these words that are familiar to many of you out of John chapter 3. This is a very familiar verse to, to a number of us. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I hope you leave here knowing this God, not just knowing about him, but knowing him and believing these words of life from his word. This is the God who does not want to condemn you. He wants to save you, but you have to respond. So so do that. Love him, worship him, follow him, trust him, even when it's difficult to do so. Let me pray his blessing over you. God, I thank you that we get to be together here this morning. Lord, some of us have not worshiped together in the same service in a really long time, and it's rich to be together. And God, as your body, as your bride, as your community, as we go from here, would we continue to worship you with the choices we make, the decisions we stand by, the relationships we involve ourselves in, and how we choose to live in relationship to you and to others? Thank you that you were the God who came to save this world, not to condemn it. So would we allow you to do that by following you and trusting you and obeying you with where you lead us? And thank you that you're here with us, but thank you also that through the power of your spirit, you go with us. And so we thank you for that. And thank you for this time we've had together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.